Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Yeah, so it would have been fucking hell. Um, 2007, me and the lads got together initially because we went to college together in Newcastle. So yeah, it's been a while. It's been a while. <laughs> how, how differently do you view the world now compared to back in 2007? I mean, it depends on what sense. Like musically, the way the world is, I don't know, politically and all of this. I mean, should we start with music? Let's start with music, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right, let's start with music. When me and the lads first got together and we were writing tunes, and I, I, I was kind of, I'd even released before that, because I've been writing songs, I'm 31, and I've been writing songs since I was about 13. So even for a few years before me and the lads kind of made the band proper, I was, you know, just releasing stuff on MySpace under the moniker of D-Mob Happy. Um, just as like little bits and bobs that I was writing. And I think, but then because I'd always written tunes and, and things like that, and then me and the lads started jamming together and, and had this great connection. And we shared a similar mindset that there was no real, I don't know, like rock and roll soul in a lot of the music um, that we were hearing. And I think that was what bonded us really initially with this kind of love of 60s and 70s rock um, that we felt just wasn't around and that people hadn't. I don't know. I mean, the state of, I mean, I was, uh, I was reviewing the top songs of like, when I say reviewing, I mean, just listening to the top songs of like the last decade. And in my opinion, like, popular music has just gotten so shit in the last 10 years beyond even, you know, even that's the thing, even when we were growing up, it was like, all oh, right, some of this isn't a bit, this is a bit crap or a bit naff. But in comparison now, some of the stuff that was in the charts when we started the band in 2007 was just of such a higher quality than the, than what there is now. It kind of, I don't know where we're even at as a band because when we initially came together we were kind of reacting against that what we saw as fairly vapid kind of pop music that we thought hang on people deserve better than this and also the rock music was a bit shit and it was like you know you had metal bands and i don't know it didn't feel like there was much blues or soul in any of it and you know me and the lads growing up on you know, I, I love 10CC and Supertramp and the Beatles and Zeppelin and Baz loves Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and all of these bands. And then collectively when we were, you know, getting older in our teens, we started to love things like The Strokes and Kings of Leon, Queens of Stone Age and White Stripes and things. And all of those bands had, an, had a feeling to them that was a bit more real and a bit more authentic. And yet when we were playing shows and we were playing around Newcastle, there just wasn't, it didn't feel like there was any of that, you know? So we wanted to bring our own little slice of that and a little bit of a slice of our own, 
I don't know, proggy little pie that we were that we were trying to create. Um, and in in reaction to a lot of what we felt was just kind of crap music. But it's just gotten so much worse that I don't even feel like there's it's not it's almost not even you know, at the time it felt like you could maybe tease the peripherals of the charts with something like what we do and it would have some sort of cultural significance. But it's just gotten so shit that I just don't even know where the comparisons lie anymore, you know? It's like, what is it even... I don't know. Do you know what I'm trying to say? That it, it's kind of... Yeah. Are you meaning? Are you kind of referencing bands as opposed to artists, though? Well, the thing was, like, when we were when in two thousand and seven and two thousand and eight and that sort of thing, there were still bands topping the charts. You know, there was still band-led music that was popular. Obviously, you had your like massive pop acts, Beyonce and whatever. But I'm, I support. I suppose I mean, yeah, more band-based stuff was 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 up there, and I think we just felt like the stuff that was up there just wasn't good enough. But now the point I'm making is that it barely even, I would take what was, what we deemed to be crap in 2007, I would take that over what is in the charts now. Do you know what I mean? I, but I think there's more space now for interesting acts. Like if you think about someone like Kendrick or Kanye and what they're kind of doing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're probably right. I, I suppose what I'm, I'm looking at it through the lens of just an overall... I don't know, band thing or just a kind of general, yeah, maybe, maybe I should clarify more focus on the band, the, the, maybe I'll get into myself into trouble here if I start naming names, but like, um, (laughs) yeah, yeah, maybe more bands. I think, you know, R and B and stuff has always kind of existed in its own world. And, and, and it's not, it's not really that sort of stuff I'm talking about. You know, I'm, I'm meaning more like, when you want a good rock and roll song, the rock and roll songs just aren't there anymore, you know, unless you listen to D-Mob Happy. <laughs> but then <laughs> is there also a little bit more space now to exist on the fringes? Are the fringes not a little bit more accessible than they were back in 2007? Well, yeah, no, that's true as well. That's true. And I think that's why these things haven't, when you ask like, how, how has it changed? I suppose this is the thing, is that when we first started, the things that we were trying to rebel against and create friction against aren't really there anymore because like you say that it is possible. I mean, the internet, I mean, this, this, <laughs> this makes us sound old, but like the internet was barely even recognizable as a thing as to what it is now back when we started, you know? So it's like, Things have changed so much that actually forming a career on the fringes, and if we were to start the band again now, maybe we'd, you know, have a different idea of things or, but yeah, you're right. I mean, it is, it is, it's just a totally different landscape now. It's almost like apples and oranges, really, you know? Do you feel like you're still trying to rebel, but just against something different? Yeah, maybe that's more appropriate, really. More of a rebellion against, more of a rebellion against, I don't know, the things that I feel and write about now are, yes, it feels less of like a um, a rebellion against culture and more the mechanisms, you know, behind culture, I suppose. Um, that's probably kind of unclear, but... Well, I, I kind of get what you mean in terms of the new single, like you're trying to rebel and unpack what fuels us to do the things that we do and how we can change that rather than what we're actually doing? Yes. Yeah, that's probably fair because I think that's where focus needs to kind of lie in a way now. I think we've all got all the options in front of us um, in terms of things that we can, I don't know, research, read, think, do. Um, But the core aspects of things, I think is where my... um, yeah, where my interest lies, the 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 heart and soul, you know. And I suppose you're right. That's probably what the song's about, really. Well, it's kind of calling. I think there's a part in it, isn't it, where you kind of call for more love and empathy, mm-hmm. and try to find a way to get back to that. It's funny because I wrote the song before lockdown, so I wrote it in I think it was like November or December uh, 2019, and 
had I've kind of watched the song in a way be kind of kind of gain more relevance as the months have gone on, you know? What was initially a kind of call in my mind, this kind of mantra thing that I saw that people need to understand perhaps a little bit more that everyone kind of comes from the same thing, you know, that there's a, a uniform, at least in my eyes, there's a kind of, there's more that joins us than separates us. And I'm not sure where the focus is exactly with, for most people. That's kind of where it came out of this, this idea that there's very basic things that join all of us. And if we could see people on that level, then all of the others kind of perceived differences would fall apart really, because they're not, they're all on insecure, faulty foundations and things like fear and misunderstanding and things like that. But the things that bond us are true and strong and eternal, you know? Um, and I suppose that was all it was really just like a little simple idea based on that, you know? Yeah. And then, and I suppose yeah, then over the last few months, that's kind of, I don't know, it's become more real in a way. There's so much has happened in the last year that could potentially divide people that bringing them together seems, um, more important than ever really, you know? Does it seem more impossible too? No, I don't think so. I think there's a, in, at least in my eyes, it feels like there's a, there's quite an interesting shift in people at the minute. I think it's quite an interesting time for like psychology and, and maybe you feel it as well, but like, it, it feels like there's a, how do I put this? People are less willing to accept shit now. And whatever form that comes in, you know, whether or not people have now seen, hang on, I don't need to like do the rat race anymore. I can spend more time in the garden. You know, when there are things that an outside force that uh, like a pandemic that sort of joins people up, then again, like what I was saying, the differences become, they kind of fade away. So yeah. I, I do feel a kind of shift. It feels like people and especially young people are becoming more and more aware of these things, which is only positive, you know. Does this maybe come back to a little bit with what we started speaking about too and how your worldview has changed? Has it changed in the sense that you're now able to look at people more in that way than maybe you were 13 years ago and see what connects us on an everyday level? Yeah, maybe, but I kind of feel like I've always looked for these things and if anything i was always just frustrated that i wasn't finding them in culture and i wasn't finding them in people i feel, I, I kind of feel like i was always um kind of sensitive and introvert and um you know emotional but the society around when i was growing up didn't encourage that whatsoever you know, like um, growing up in Newcastle and and things like that, like peer pressure and the whole like, you know, boys don't cry. And, and, and that sort of, that whole kind of toxic masculine, masculinity sort of thing that that like almost wasn't even like a word. And and these kind of concepts were barely even like things, you know, like it, it's it's almost impossible to sort of remember like in a way, but there's been such an explosion of um, awareness into different people and men, like like the emotions of young men and like and like how much uh, emotion is suppressed in young people and especially young men and how that's encouraged by society. Like that's been there's been a huge explosion in the awareness of this stuff just in the last few years, and yeah, I mean. Again, it's like, it's, I feel like I've always been aware of these things, but I don't know. I don't know. Society's still playing catch up to the, to the, the needs or, you know, society's always going to be kind of behind 
to individual concerns and things. Um, does that does that make sense? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but then the arts and music usually tend to be a little bit further ahead of the rest of society. Or they're well, kind of yeah. usually paving the way in a progressive manner. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's why the arts are so um, important and why, you know, like the current situation is just completely horrendous. I mean, it's funny that we should be talking about this and having this conversation now when in like a few hours... Boris Johnson's going to go on and talk about whatever lockdown they think is necessary um, to continue. And it's like, it's kind of holding my immediate future and the immediate future of thousands and thousands of artists in the balance, really, because it's, if this, you know, I don't know what's exact. I don't know if these lockdowns continue and then they continue until the middle of August or something, you know, who knows what's going to happen to festivals that I'm playing like Reading and Leeds. It's it's such an unsure time. It's it's really not okay that the arts are continually at the bottom of the pile. I mean, I know I'm not the first person to say this, but like, you know, it, it doesn't make any sense that you can have thousands and thousands and thousands of people in football stadiums, yet people can't like go to gigs i mean it doesn't make any sense um but the arts yes are extremely important and yeah i mean maybe i've always yeah i mean i think i've probably been writing around this sort of subject maybe not so much in my earlier work but for a long time and you're right the arts are the kind of like vanguard of that aren't they the the pioneers to try and help society sort of push it along to, to cut maybe to cut a long answer short here <laughs> What the thing, the thing is, is that the focus, I think, in the early days of DMOB, the focus was just on a slightly different place. And yes, the focus has moved and evolved like it should. And I think in the early days, in our teenage days, it was like a rebellion against um, a, a culture, a musical culture that we saw as like boring and stifled and with no soul or heart or anything like that. And but yeah, that's evolved. I mean, it there's still a bit of that, but there's also a lot of other stuff as well now, you know? So maybe that's the that's the short answer. It's interesting to think about what you were saying there as well, that you feel like you've been circling around these topics when it comes to mental health and men being able to express themselves for a while. Because mm-hmm. it brings my mind to the quote that you put on, I think it was the inside of Holy Doom, mm-hmm. about depression It's like a woman in black. Yeah, that's a beautiful quote, that. Yeah, it's by Carl Jung, and he says... Depression is like a woman in black. Um, greet, it's something like greet her at the door. Hang on, I'm going to butcher this if I don't get this right. Hang on. Where is Invite it? Invite her in, I think, isn't it? Invite her in, give her a seat at the table or something. Yeah, that's it. Invite her in, give her a seat, and then let her go or something like that. I think it's listen to her, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you probably know better than me now. It's, it was a while since <laughs> I put it in. <laughs> um, but yes, that in essence is there. It's basically saying like, and I feel strongly about this, is that um, there's, no, there's no real use in hiding from these things. You've got to sort of let it in, deal with it, um, see it for what it is, you know, take the lesson that you need to from the emotion sort of understand what part you play what part other people play all of these things kind of I don't know toss the idea around in your mind and then digest it understand it and then move on and and that's the the healthiest way at least in my mind to kind of deal with a lot of things in life you know what do you feel are some of the most important lessons that you've learned from welcoming the woman in black in to kind of go along with that metaphor? I think I've learned that I've learned a lot about um, forgiveness, I think, not holding on to resentment and things like that. And that resentment doesn't serve anyone really other than you know, damaging yourself. Um, you're the only person who suffers really. Yeah. There's been occasions in my life where I think I've felt, um, wronged and things like that. And where I've put a lot of, um, time into relationships and feel like that hasn't really been honored and hasn't been put, put back. 
into me. And yeah, I think the learning to move on from that and not resent the people involved is something that I've, yeah, really had to learn to do because I've been very hurt, you know? And normally you're going to go, all right, that's, you know, fuck that person forever. <laughs> but it doesn't, it doesn't work. It doesn't actually help. Um, so being able to, yeah, to move on from those things um, and forgive and, you know, laugh about it in the end is, um, is the healthiest thing you can do. I think that's, yeah. Does that translate to other aspects of your life as well? Does that then make it easier to maybe move past things that you would have viewed as like missed opportunities or something? Yeah, probably. I mean, yeah, I should imagine so. I, I don't hold, I try not to hold on to things. I mean, you can, you can go insane trying, you know, thinking about every little opportunity that could or wasn't and could have been or wasn't. And I don't think it, um, yeah, again, I don't think it really serves you to dwell on those things um, because each person's path and, you know, is their own and each person's kind of journey through learning of themselves and their emotions and becoming and hopefully better, bettering themselves is their own. And if you start to think about too much about um, things that could have been, I think it maybe calls into question the current, but if you're happy, you know, with where you are right now and you think you're on a positive path where you are, then you would never have gotten to that place. You know, it's like coming out of a really bad relationship and you think while, while you're going through the breakup, it, it seems like the worst thing in the world. But then once you're able to digest that and say, you know, you may say, oh, I wish this had never happened. But once you've passed that and you learn the lessons um, and you grow, it's, you can start to feel good about it, you know, and you start to understand it. Um, and I think that's true of a career of a band as true as, as well of it, as well as it is a relationship, because there's probably things I might think I'd do again differently, but I'm not really at the place where I'd want to change anything because if I'm happy with the music I'm writing now, which I am, then I would never have gotten here if I hadn't done all that, you know? Loss always becomes growth. Absolutely, yeah. As you move down that path and you become a better person, are there certain attributes that you acquire as a person that then make you a better songwriter in turn? Yeah, maybe. Don't ask me to identify what that might be in me, though. Because <laughs> <laughs> I don't really honestly know. I mean, I don't... The, the thing is for my for me and my songwriting the what i always love what what always excites me initially about an idea more than anything else is the chords and the melody and that's what i write first i'll write usually a chord sequence that i think oh that's interesting i've kind of never really heard something like that before or you know whatever you find interesting about chord sequences um and then I'll write a melody over the top. And I'll, I actually find that my best lyrics actually come at this point where I'll improvise a melody over the top of the chords as I play them round. And I'll, I have quite a good, um, a fairly well-earned kind of ingrained sense of um, whether or not a melody is crap or not pretty quickly. I kind of know... I'm like, yeah, that's worth pursuing. Or within the first second of me writing it, I'll go, nah, that's crap. And I've gotten so good at this now where my output of what I deem to be, what I at least deem to be good melodies is quite high because I kind of know where, I know when they're shit, you know, like really quick. Um, it's like a sixth sense. Yeah, yeah, I suppose so, yeah. And it's just, you know, that's just earned from, I've been writing music for 18 years now. So, you know, you'd, you'd expect me to have something like that. Well, what's going on there, though? Is there like a pattern between the ideas early on that make that allows you to realize that that path isn't worth following? What is it that you're kind of spotting? Yeah, that's that's kind of it, really. It is it is like that. Is is You're right, it's a path. It's a kind of... 
maybe retreading old ground or um i don't know i i have a technique where i'll always try and find an interesting note to start the melody on you know and if it feels like that note has some edge or something interesting about it then i'll maybe go from there or i'll i'll try and yeah find notes in the chord which are unusual or or whatever really or or like a phrasing which is quite nice or something um and it doesn't yeah it doesn't feel like i've done it before or um it feels like it's i i don't really know i mean i don't honestly know what that exact thing would be but it's it's my taste i guess i guess that's the thing it's my taste really i've just kind of um refined my taste over the years you know where i where it's more obvious to me what i like quicker now you know the thing with the the lyrics is i find that when i'm in that place and in that kind of flow state as it's called i will often kind of improvise lyrics which are my favorite lyrics i ever write are the lyrics i don't try and write um if i you know if i sit down and write ly- lyrics it can often be quite an arduous thing that i sort of resent having to do but when i come up with lyrics off the top of my head they're 99% of the time my favorite lyrics that are right for that song um and then often the process after that is filling in the gaps of the stuff that i wrote and trying to make the other stuff as good you know and i think that's just i mean there's probably a million different answers to to why that happens or how that happens um but for me when you're in that kind of flow state like that and it is it's a meditative state really everything else kind of cancels out and doesn't mean as much and my focus is entirely what i'm doing it's like the words kind of just come from the back of my mind and i'm not consciously thinking of them um and then because of that it feels like they're more authentic and realer and more pure which is why probably over the years i've made some fairly like grand statements in my lyrics but uh <laughs> for me when they come from a place of total authenticity when i when i know that i didn't even write them they just kind of appeared in my mind at least for my enjoyment of them there's there's a pure authenticity to them because they didn't i know that i didn't sit there for hours and think hmm what's a popular thing to say or what's cool or what's like what will everyone like you know i don't really give any of that sort of thing any consideration like if it comes out of my head and i didn't think about it much it's probably good it's probably tapping into things that you've thought a lot about before though like what we were just saying about sympathy boy and how you kind of been turning the subject of that around in your head for quite a while and thinking it through and then when you're in that space it's almost tapping into that and it's coming out in a different form Yes, I think you're absolutely right. That's a nice way of putting it really. That when you when you spend a lot of time thinking and reading or, you know, as as I do um on 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 different things and you and you are kind of yeah, gestating these ideas in your brain. Yeah, you're probably right that it that it is going to come out in in I think the the mind has a beautiful way of kind of ordering and um not diluting. Um the opposite of diluting increasing the concentration yeah there's a nice word for that though isn't there um distilling that's it uh like there kind of go. distilling those ideas into a into beautiful little nuggets um and that's what i like and then that's the thing when you're gifted with one of those profound beautiful little nuggets you'd be mad to kind of go nah i'm not going to use that you know um so again to cut a long answer short well, you were, the initial question was, do you think this has kind of um, changed the songwriting at all? And I would say yes, in the sense that these little nuggets that come through reflect what I'm thinking about at the time more. And that's changed th- th- across the years, you know, as I've become more comfortable with me and who I am and and more comfortable to share more with people then my lyrics have become more um open and emotional and that's far more true on this new album than it's ever been on anything we've done in the past whereas i used to wrap things up in kind of which is quite fun in itself but i used to wrap it up in my lyrics up in like three or four layers of meaning so that i could kind of hide behind a a, a wall of 
interpretability, you know, where someone, I could say, someone would say, oh, is that what that's about? And I could say, oh, no, it's not, it's not about that. You kind of, and, and kind of constantly hide from the truth of what I was trying to say, which is, like I say, it's kind of fun. Um, but I'm more interested now in finding very direct ways to say universal, quite simple truths, um, but in beautiful kind of poetic, interesting ways that get stuck in people's heads, you know? That idea of being more comfortable in yourself too, does that also carry into the way that you use your voice? Because in the last few things that you've done, you're kind of stretching it in a lot of different directions, more so than in the past. Yeah, um, I reckon it probably does. Uh, and if you heard the new album and the rest of it as well, I'm, I'm doing a lot more with my voice. I've kind of always, you know, when I was, when I was first starting to sing, and even I listened back to say Dream Soda, our first album, I get that feeling of like, oh, I wasn't really sure what my voice was, what I was trying to do. You know, I wasn't as well trained as I am now. I kind of hadn't put the, the years in all the touring and I didn't know how to use my voice. And I, and I hear that immaturity in my voice when I listen back to those things. And I think that's true of a lot of singers, really. There has been a process of over the years, just me learning more and more what my things actually sit in my throat and in my kind of range. Um, whereas before I was, I, I was probably fairly guilty of trying to ape where other people might sing or something, but I've kind of, and also, and also I guess because like, like, you know, top lines, melody writing, pop singers and stuff, they always sing high because it sounds best on radio or whatever. Whereas naturally I've got quite a low voice. I've got, my range when I go up into my falsetto is, is fairly decent and the top end of my kind of chest voice, um, I don't know if this is interesting, but like the, is, is kind of like a G sharp A on a good day. And I think on this new album, and you can probably hear it on Sympathy Boy, I'm just more confident with singing a bit lower now, whereas I was never that confident of my kind of chesty voice um my my lower kind of register and it feels cooler and sexier to me to be singing down there now whereas i used to sing up kind of high um higher in a more strained way because i just didn't like how it sounded lower down yeah it probably is evolving i guess i'm older as well i'm 31 now these things happen um your vocal cords change as does the rest of your body and stuff so yeah, I think that's reflected on the album for sure. But I'll always en I'll always enjoy singing up really high in falsetto and things. I, there was a song off the last album, Holy um, Holy Doom, and that's kind of all in falsetto. And I really love that. I love singing like that because it's so crystalline, the cr kind of crystalline and, and pure. And yeah, I, I like how that sounds. But maybe I'll maybe I'll do more of that later. But yeah, this this new album, there's quite a lot of kind of croonery low stuff actually how does the way you think about your voice differ to when it's in someone else's song because you feature on caprezzi was that caprezza yeah caparezza caparezza mm. I, I knew i wasn't gonna get it <laughs> <laughs> yeah you feature on on his new album how is that different to when you're going into someone else's song with your voice are you, well, what are you thinking about it there to be honest, man, I, I've done so little of that that I feel like I'm not really set up to answer that question. Like, that's pretty much the only song that I've ever... That's the only time I've ever lent anyone vocals on their music, you know? But in the small amount of kind of experience I have, I mean, he he approached me just because he, he's a fan of the band and a fan of my delivery and voice, I suppose, and wanted me to sing the chorus from a song, uh, an old kind of punk song that it was, that he wanted to use, but the sample wasn't good enough and he kind of thought I could sing it better. So that's what I did. And to be honest, man, like I didn't give it like a huge amount of thought. I just set up the microphone, did a few runs, did maybe 10 or 10 or so different takes um, sent them to him. And, and I kind of did it in a couple of different ways. I was like extended some of the vowel sounds and put a bit more grit on some and, you know, made some a bit more like the original, you know, that sort of thing and sent them. And I was just like, well, I don't know. I didn't know if he was just going to be say, oh, well, nah, you're not the man for the job. 
or what, you know? And he was just, just like, yeah, that's fine. Great. And I thought, oh, okay. So that's that then, you know, that that's that done. So I, I didn't, yeah, I didn't really honestly give it that much thought. Um, that was maybe key to it, not overthinking it too much. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I just, and I suppose that comes from like the place of, like I know um, professional singers who do a lot of kind of advert and TV work and they'll have to sing the same line, like, I don't know, some, some ad, you know, McDonald's or whatever, like um, I'm loving it or something. They'll have to sing that like, 500 times you know in different ways and then they and then the the producer will then trawl through and you know oh can you do this inflection slightly differently or whatever and it it didn't get to that level of (laughs) extreme um micro kind of focusing because i just thought well he is obviously a fan of what i do so i'm just gonna go in there and like how would i sing it if it was a d-mob song and then that's pretty much how i did it really where is he from again? He's an Italian. He's from Italy. Where, uh, like Milan? Was it Milan? He's from, I believe he's from down in the south of Italy in Puglia. Yeah. I don't, I'm not sure where, but I, I think he's from down there. Which is funny. Have you, you toured there before? No, I've never toured in Italy. I've been to Italy lots of times because um, my, I'm half Italian. My, my dad's Italian. So I've been to Italy, you know, countless times, really. Um, and I'd, I'd actually just been on a holiday last year to Puglia. So it was quite funny, really, that it sort of came about. Um, funny coincidence. Funny coincidence, yeah. It was a shame it wasn't the other way around. Then I could have said hello, but, you know, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of uh, traveling stories, what was the what was the deal with you running into a shaman at Joshua Tree again? <laughs> Where have you picked that up from? That's an interesting <laughs> one. Well, it kind of caught my attention. It's an, um, there's not too many concrete details on it, but it sounds a little bit fascinating. I feel like there might be some wires crossed. So, unless you're talking about this kind of old wizard dude that Victor. we met. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's funny how these things get around. Um, that that just happened because like we were we were in Joshua Tree and it's my favorite place in the world from a boy for a boy from Northumberland in, you know, Newcastle where I don't think there's much risk of finding a desert. Like, I don't know. I just had this most amazing connection with being out in the desert. So it's a really beautiful place. And we were out there. I can't remember what it was the first, it was, yeah, it was the start of the first U S tour we did. And, um, we decided the lads had never been to Joshua tree. So I was like, let's start there and I'll show you around cause you'll love it. And they did. And we were in this little bar called Pappy and Harriet's. I actually bumped into a girl who I'd met at Desert Days Festival, which is a festival that takes place near Joshua Tree in 2017. And um, I bumped into her. She just said, you know, you should go up the hill and meet um, this guy, this kind of, this old wizard dude. And so me and the lads thought, well, absolutely, you know. So So we went and found him. It was just amazing, really. I mean, he just built this kind of, it was this, if you can imagine me plus like 70 years, it's probably how I'll look. Like long, <laughs> super long gray hair, rings all over him, like a big old beard and- Robert Plant. Yeah, exactly. Like a proper, <laughs> you know, <laughs> stereotype of uh, an old an old wizard. Yeah, and he just built this um, with with a couple of other people, this amazing kind of, little, I don't know, desert oasis. Like it had a little pool there and some little houses and they decorated it really nicely with, you know, like bits of different colored stone and they'd done painting and all of this. It was a beautiful place. And we just ended up hanging out with him. What was the guy's story? What's his deal? What was he doing up there? What's his kind of... To be honest, I think, I think he just kind of decided to escape from the city. Uh, And I don't know if it was LA, but it might have been. I think he just decided to get out and bought a bit of land up in Joshua Tree years ago and just had decided to live there. I think it, w- it was just kind of like, and, and it was livable, you know, there's a few houses that they'd built and it was fairly, it was fairly nice, really. It wasn't like he was just living under a rock. Like it was like, you know, there was beds and it was, it was quite cozy in parts. But yeah, I mean, I think he just decided to live that desert life, really. Um, but he was an interesting guy. It was just surreal, man, to be honest, because, you know, jet lag times by 
we had already been at the bar anyway, after having a few drinks. I'd, I'd already had like a few tequilas by then because the tequila in uh, <laughs> Papi and Harriet's, that bar is just, they serve it. You might get it in 25 milli- milliliter measures here, but it's like a half a glass when you buy it there. It's just, in, it's insane. So, and we'd eaten lunch and yeah, so it was a totally surreal kind of odd moment really being up on this mountain with this random guy in the desert, but it was very fun. This idea of a mountain is kind of bringing to mind you know close encounters with the, hell yeah. at the end of that <laughs> yeah because you you brought you, you kind of used that a little bit on a poster once didn't you yeah yeah i did actually yeah good good deep cut there that was a long time ago <laughs> um that's a yeah i, I love that poster actually i actually got that off the front of an old ufo book and so it wasn't directly related to close encounters but it was i think based around the same idea sort of thing this idea that there was this this kind of rock, um, that that of that shape, I, I maybe I might be getting my wires crossed, but I feel like Close Encounters borrowed from a kind of story of this kind of monument rock thing where aliens are meant to have come down to, and I think there were yeah I can't remember exactly, but I you're yes. on the, yeah you're, there is something like that in America I'm pretty sure yeah I forget it's, what it's, it's called it's got an odd formation about it and it's almost like they built it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is contact. That's the thing, which is what happens in um, Close Encounters as well. Builds it out potato. Well, at least the mini <laughs> version, anyway. <laughs> how uh, how would you describe the influence of cinema on your music? Because this new single too, the start of that is very kind of spacey, mm. kind of Blade Runner type sci-fi stuff. Mm-hmm. Quite a lot, to be honest. I mean, because yeah, I mean, I do the artwork in the band as well. And so there's always this kind of, I don't, I don't want to use the word synergy. That feels like a horrible word to use. Uh, there's a, <laughs> a through line between everything. Um, and so it all kind of adds up, at least in my mind, and makes sense. But yeah, it's probably quite evocative of a lot of sci-fi. I mean, I love sci-fi. It's my favorite kind of genre, my favorite thing. Um, and I love the, yeah, the dystopian kind of sci-fi of Blade Runner and those big, you know, Van Vangelis kind of synthesizer lines. And, you know, I love John Carpenter's films and all of the music he did for those. And I like, you know, a lot of tripped out kind of new agey sort of like synthesizer stuff. Like I just, I really enjoy big synth chords. Um, and I suppose there's probably, yeah, there's probably quite a fair bit of that on the new album, really. Like, uh, I guess in the last few years since writing um, Holy Doom, that's been one of the main things I've been exploring, really, is um, is that. But also, I mean, have you heard of Sebastian Tellier? Yeah, but I don't know why. Um, I'd check him out. He's this French artist, and one of his albums, it's... Um, I know the songs, it's got like Luck and Divine on it. I think it's called, is it Sexual Sportswear? It's, or is that one of the songs? Hang on, let me find it here so I can... I have a feeling Alex Turner maybe spoke about him in an interview. That's oh, really? I, I might have checked him out from. Well, Sebastian Tellier has an album and it is one of my favourite albums despite not being that. Yeah, it's called Sexuality, that's it. And that came out in 2008 and I actually discovered him through one of my other favorite things in the world, which is the Eurovision, which he actually did the French entry for with one of his songs off that album. And I was like, wow, that's absolutely amazing. And that album is kind of full of like really beautiful old vintage synthesizers and, and these kind of synth chords. And because I'm a piano player originally, really, um, before, I, only, I only started playing bass because we needed a bass player in D-Mob because um, I'm otherwise a piano player. Um, I find a beautiful satisfaction in finding new kind of evocative chord sequences and things like that, which feel, I don't know, which triggers something in me that, yeah, has this kind of bittersweet feeling and his music is full of that. So I was probably trying to write some sort of Sebastian Tellier-esque sort of synth line and which is how I came up with Sympathy Boy, because normally I'm, or, or something, you know, or something kind of Blade Runner-y or something like that, because I love what that evokes in my mind, you know? What, what you were saying there about exploring, you're producing 
the single and the new album too. Has that changed the way in which you explore? Yeah, I suppose it has really, because it's changed the way that I make stuff in that I never tried to make the demos kind of totally finished versions of what I wanted them to be. It was always, okay, I'll get this kind of halfway there and then we'll put it over the line in in the studio. But I actually found that ultimately really quite unsatisfactory because although the demos were half finished, in my mind, I knew what the other 50% was and I didn't understand why other people couldn't also hear that. So it took me a while to realize that not everyone is inside my brain, <laughs> which is a kind of obvious thing to think. But when you're making music, I just, you know, the way I would produce stuff or in the early days, I would maybe just think, oh, right, the drum beat wants to do this pattern, but I won't think too much about how the drums sound. But in my mind, I was projecting, I was kind of thinking, yeah, but everyone else knows what it should sound like. Therefore, I'll, I don't need to project, or I didn't even consciously think about it that much. I just thought, yeah, everyone's on the same wavelength. This demo is obviously 50% there, but you know what the other 50% should be. And then I found it unsatisfying time and time again, working with producers, because I discovered that they didn't know what that other 50% was. We'd go in the studio and then it would come out and I'd be like, hang on, that doesn't sound right. And go through this ardu arduous kind of really demoralizing process of kind of trying to backwards engineer what I wanted it to sound like to begin with, you know? And on this album, I've just had the absolute opportunity to just go, no, I'm gonna, I know what I want it to sound like and I'm gonna take it all the way there. Yeah, and, and so that's kind of true of the last the last run of singles as well that I kind of co-produced and I had a, a tighter hold on that. And and I think it's just, honestly, I think it's just a um, an, uh, an experience thing, you know. I've learned more about how to actually make A sound like B now, you know, whereas before it, I was just kind of, I had no idea really. But you you pick up little things and I've learned little tricks and yeah, I'm far more aware now. Um, yeah, and so it has, it's meant that I've, my vision for how I want the songs to be is is clearer, yeah, on these now. It's interesting. I don't want to place too much of an emphasis upon kind of commercial success in numbers, but you've seen there that the last three singles, you know, you had a tighter hold on them and that was you starting to completely drive your vision forward in its entirety. And those three singles have, I think, been three of the most successful that you've released numbers-wise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's your kind of view on that? Do you think that's a coincidence or...? Uh, I don't know. I don't know whether or not vision that I had for those songs, being able to kind of make sure that they came out exactly the way I had in mind. I don't know if that has a bearing because that then you'd have to call into question how much the production of the music has has a bearing on its success, really. And I've always been of the opinion that uh, a good song is a good song, whether or not it's played on a ukulele or a flute or a guitar, you know? Um, I want to hear what Demo Pappy sounds like <laughs> in a ukulele now. <laughs> no, you fucking don't. I would <laughs> rather shoot myself than have... Sorry to any ukulele players out there, but I've... Uh, the amount of when we went through that period in culture of advertising where every other like like kind of faux authentic brand wanted to make themselves appear kind of green and with the people would use a ukulele and a whistle of just that it burnt all bridges for ukuleles in my mind <laughs> um so no that's not going to happen but the yeah i mean i guess that's the thing is um I don't know. I don't, I really don't know. You know, could those songs have been produced differently and still would have been good? Maybe. Is there like a, that kind of je ne sais quoi sort of relationship, that kind of untouchable, unknowable thing about um, the relationship between when a good song is just produced right and also is a good song, you know, you get that beautiful moment and then that's what makes stuff kind of timeless i mean i'm not claiming to have written any timeless music but you know what i mean that kind of 
um, when the the stars align, you know, because I don't know. I mean, you could listen to loads of Beatles stuff and say if it wasn't produced like that, I mean, they could have just been absolute non non events. So I don't know is the answer to that question. Maybe, maybe not. Timing plays such a big role too, though. And it's a role that you can't really control. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. I don't know. I've never been that bothered about, like, playing into other people's... I, I, I've often thought, like, if we become some sort of smash success, it'll not be because we've changed, but we're just... The, the world kind of got on board with what we were doing, you know? Because I don't... I don't have any ambition to suit other people really and and the the moving trends you know I th- like we we're kind of talking about earlier I, the the world is wide enough now and accessible enough that even if 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 I just continue to do what I believe is right and it has an aesthetic and a sound and things that I believe in um which is like more lending from like the golden age of recording in my eyes like the 60s and 70s then there's enough people out there who agree you know that they would they'd want to hear more stuff that sounds like it was made in 1974 than 2021 um there's enough people out there who agree with that but whether or not mass culture ever ever feels that is is (laughs) i don't i don't know maybe maybe not probably not Time will tell. Time will tell, yeah. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 